activate your energy. Welcome to the Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. What is up, Activators? And welcome back to another episode of the Activated Authors Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox, and here with me every single week is... Samantha Frost, or Sam Frost, because Samantha is my father. Interesting. I did not know that about you. <laughs> I am learning something new every week. There you go. <laughs> How's it going, Sam? Horribly. Mm. How's it going with you? <laughs> oh, just so hot. It's yeah. come out of nowhere again. Uh, and you'll probably hear little one chattering away in the background because I'm also back on dad duty. Um, yep. But, you know, needs must. Um, but yeah, just I am, I'm at that point of like aggressive hot like just oh. because I, I, I don't want to like carp on about the weather every single week on the scene but, yeah, but it's ridiculous it's ridiculous I'm on the first floor of a house like masonette style thing so all the heat rises and I have all the windows open I've got a fan blowing I've got all this stuff going on and just it doesn't dispel so I can go outside in the sun and it is cooler than it currently is in my house um so people watching on YouTube enjoy <laughs> <laughs> and what about you Sam well, I mean, I'm currently sat on the top floor of my house, mm. and it is Satan's butthole temperature. Satan's butthole temperature. You heard it here, folks. Um, Satan's butthole. Yeah. And I am currently very not well, although better than I have been. I yeah. Had we recorded this yesterday, he might not have been your chirpy self. <laughs> had you recorded this yesterday, you'd have probably had to do it by yourself. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've done so many of those. Yeah. So you'd be mm-hmm. excellent. Thanks, Bailey. Just said I'm doing good. Um, what you, what you can, well, I assume probably not working on much at the minute, given that, you know, you've been oh. very, very ill for the last like week. I've been working on getting through um, all of the seasons of Brooklyn Nine-Nine while being unable to really move mm-hmm. from the sofa. Um, I'm also currently working on... Um, keeping a demon dog at bay because I'm looking after my mum's dog for a week which started today mm-hmm. um I've done a little bit of vlogging I've done a little bit of research um on the Roe v Wade situation mm-hmm. but yeah not much to be honest just kind of been trying to um stay breathing which has been harder it's been harder than I would like this week how about you what have you been working on I finished my 68th book okay so nothing big (laughs) that's insane congratulations thank you um yeah worked to deadline pumped out the words um started to bring in a plan i will say so something there's what the next one yeah i i feel i just realized that you're going to finish ghostwriting on on 69 and it's so happy (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i have i finished this book uh which is much books um and then outside of that because there's really nothing much more to say other than i've been writing and working on that and finish that today so i'm very very happy with that um i had my mind blown this week by none other none other than our own uh meg in our uh, yes. community when she was on the rebel author podcast last week um in which just blew my mind like there is there are a few things in life that you kind of it, it happens every now and then there's there are those things you just take as a given that you don't think about that you just do mm-hmm. so in this example every year I plan my year in quarters because three months, quarters, it, it feels good. It comes over from like the corporate stuff I've done before. It makes sense. Like divide 12 months into four, three months each. That's cool. Like you can chip away. You can do your goals each year. Um, the last couple of years, I've bounced up backwards and forwards between starting my business goals in January because obviously new year. And yep. then there's a financial new year in April. So this year I moved my main goals in line with financial goals and was just like, yep. ignore January. That, technically means nothing all of my stuff starts in april goes for the year forward and then listening to some stuff that meg said on that podcast in which she basically described about how she divides her year into what she calls septiles which are essentially seven chunks mm-hmm. and the reason she does seven chunks is because there are essentially six 
period throughout the year in which you have half terms in the UK, at least for, for, for kids. And then the summer, six plus one is seven, just for people who haven't worked that. <laughs> and within these septiles, you basically plan them for the half terms. And one of the things I have been struggling with is that within those quarters, I always struggle to align for half terms. And for yep. whatever reason, they just don't fit in with the plan and they suddenly take me by surprise. Suddenly I've got like a week, two weeks in which I can't do work, summer, all that kind of stuff. Um, and this takes that into account. Like at the end of each septile is a half term. So I'm now in a period in which I can plan my year into seven chunks. I've already marked out the calendar for the, you know, what this year is. Yep. Still keeping it in line. We're starting around April, give or take a few things. Um, but it also means that I have more areas of review as well. And what I've discovered about myself is I don't like to plan too far in advance because in quite lots of things change in three months. So these are like six to eight week periods in which when that period comes, I've got a list of projects I want to get on with. By the time that period starts, I can point at one and go, that's what I'm doing this period. And it just, it just struck home with me. It just worked amazingly and it is my new system. So nice. that happened this week. Yeah, um, I've never heard of the word septile. I don't know that it's technically accurate. Oh, they it kind of makes sense. You have quartiles. Yeah. I mean, yeah, never heard of it before. And honestly, at this point, I've heard it more than I think any other word ever in my life this week. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been raving and jumping about like septiles, yeah. make septiles. Yeah. Um, what's something you've enjoyed this week? Oh God. Nothing. Night nurse. God bless medicine. Modern medicine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, like, it's been, I, 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 I can't, it's been. I'm kind of, so sorry, Sam. It remains to be really rough. Mm -hmm. um, but at least with that, I'm getting a little bit of relief and actually managing to sleep at night. We'll say you've been on, or well, you're on the up now, fingers crossed, without, you know, yeah. jinxing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> So, I mean, honestly, other than, I mean, Brooklyn Nine-Nine has kept me sane and Night Nurse has kept me alive. What about you? What have you enjoyed? <laughs> the finale of Stranger Things for me. Oh, nice. Like episode eight is like an hour and a half and the final episode is like two hours, 40 minutes. So it's like a whole film in itself and it just delivered. I was just, I en Yay. enjoyed that whole season from start to finish. I, I said to you earlier this week, it was one of those that I was kind of, I enjoyed, but I definitely got the most out of season one. Yes. And then season two and three were good, but like, I, it was kind of, you know, I was drifting away a bit. And then season four just pulled me right back in because it's just, it's just masterfully pulled all the elements together in a way it's that... lighter for season four. What's that, sorry? Mm? What did you say? <laughs> huh? Huh? <laughs> My ears are blocked. I'm so sorry. I said, is it the same writer? So like, yes, for, for, for the four seasons. Yeah, it's the Duffer Brothers. Okay. Yeah, the Duffer Brothers. Unfortunate. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's what I've enjoyed this week. And then obviously, I will getting down to the point where I have one ghostwriting book to go. Um, I commissioned book 69. Book 69. I commissioned a cover yesterday for a potential new project, which I'm so excited for. Um, and yeah take you from there nice uh our weekly win this week is brought to you by none other than uh emmy uh who says that she began a seriously delicious 180 degree writing project as a palate cleanser and have dedicated the month of july to writing and leveling up her craft which i love actually taking a bit of time out to do something a bit different and, and to work what what what, what? <laughs> i'm sorry two dogs just entered my room humping oh they moved that's impressive more than anything else yeah. that's like a freaky little pug conga <laughs> This is madness this week. This is what we get for overheating in the UK, also being on parental uh, responsibilities and also being ill. So yeah. apologies for the frivolities, people. Yeah, and I'm sorry you couldn't see that because as much as watching... I can picture in my head it's hilarious. ...isn't everybody's <laughs> thing. Um, it was genius. Now, I'm just going to remove these. I thought I'd shut my door, but they found a way in while humping, which quite frankly is just impressive. I'm going to remove them. Okay. Uh, just just for the poor people on YouTube and also I imagine because they're not quiet dogs. Yeah, I can already hear them. So are the dogs gone now? Yes, the door is shut. They are out. No yeah. more hunting. Well, no well, more hunting here anyway. Not presently. <laughs> no, not, at least I don't have to witness it. But anyway, moving on from like dog humping. <laughs>
Um, who do we have this week, Dan? Who's our guest? I am very excited about our guest this week. So our guest this week is none other than Tim Levin. Uh, for people unfamiliar with Tim Levin, he is a horror author and a author of dark fantasy. Mm-hmm. He has written a lot of um, intellectual property times on books such as Alien and Hellboy and Firefly. And I know you're a big Firefly fan. Fire, Firefly fan. Mm-hmm. Firefly fan. Yeah. That sounds like an amazing dessert. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I met Tim at the Chillicon conference I went to a couple of weeks ago in uh, Scarborough. Uh, we hit it off right away. We're both massive Frank Turner fans. If, if no one's listened to Frank Turner before, check him out. He is incredible on Spotify. Um, but yeah, I guess there's nothing else to say other than enjoy this interview with the incredible, wonderful, amazing Tim Levin. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by the incredible Tim Levin. Tim Levin is an award-winning New York Times best-selling horror, thriller, and fantasy writer from a little village in South Wales. He's written over 45 novels, dozens of novellas, hundreds of short stories, as well as tie-in novels in the Alien, Predator, Hellboy, Star Wars, and Firefly universes. And his novel, The Silence, was made into a Netflix movie starring Kian and Shipka and Stanley Tucci. When not writing, Tim can be found swimming, biking, and running in triathlons, Activities which found their way into his non-fiction book, Run, Walk, Crawl, Getting Fit in My 40s. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. Great to be here. That was a good intro. Yeah, like that one. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of meat in there that we can dive into. And actually yeah, trying yeah. to go through that and trying to like work out what I wanted to talk about in this conversation. <laughs> there are so many different directions that we can go. Yeah. Um, but I'm yeah. actually going to start on something that kind of caught my eye when you jumped on camera, which is you have a number of mugs on that radiator. What, yeah. What's the story behind all of those mugs? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I think... That's my favourite. Uh, Mr. Zombie? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then this is a good one. So I had The Silence published in Germany. Nice. Uh, and the publisher, I just went all out with publicity. And it's it's the most beautiful, the most beautiful limited edition book I've ever had. Yeah. By um, Bookheim Verlag. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah. So, and then the other ones, I don't know, we just collect them. Just yeah. collect mugs. <laughs> Fair enough. Why not? Everyone's got their thing. So tell my audience a little bit about yourself and, you know, kind of, I know it's kind of a lot to cover, but how you got into writing and how you've kind of gotten to where you are today. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's broad yeah, strokes. To cover. I'll try and do it. <laughs> so I've, I've always written since I was um, preteen, really. I mean, I, I've always enjoyed writing stories and telling stories. Um, my mum, my mum got me into reading um, my parents, my mum mainly, I guess, when I was really young. And pre-teens, I was reading like a book a day and I'd, I'd help at the local library with my, my friend Amadin. We'd go there, go there after school and restock, reshelve all the books. Um, just always had a love of books. And then mum gave me uh, The Rats to Read by James Herbert. Oh, perfect. 10 or 11. She was a very liberal-minded mum. And that changed everything for me. Obviously, I went, uh, you know, went from reading Hardy Boys books to Stephen King. Mm-hmm. With, with nothing in the middle because when I was a long time ago when I was that age it wasn't such a it wasn't such a YA field as there is now it, it was kids books and and then adult books um and then through my teens I was reading all this horror stuff and all sorts of war stories and and just started writing with more with a more with a view to finishing stuff and then early 20s I started writing with a view to getting stuff published um and that happened eventually with Mesmer when I was <laughs> mid to late 20s I think my first novel mm. um yeah that was yeah mid 20s that was published wow. uh, and just went on from there really year by year I've got more stuff published I wrote more started making enough money to think about going full-time which I did I think 17 years ago this year I've been writing for a living which is um Sometimes terrifying and sometimes, <laughs> you know, exhilarating. It's certainly exhilarating in the way that a fairground, uh, a roller coaster is exhilarating, I guess, ups and downs, but more ups and downs without yeah. that. Still doing it and still no regrets. Yeah. And obviously, as we said in the intro, you've got a, quite the, the backlist there, massive catalogue of, of Tim Levin books. Yeah. Um, I, already, I already want to jump back a little bit to uh, one of the ways that you phrased something really caught me there, which was uh, in your sort of teens, you worked mostly on finishing books. And it wasn't in, until you're in your twenties that you started to actually look at publishing books, right? Yeah. So you were so at that point you were writing books literally just just for the joy of it, just for getting it down on paper, just for yourself at that point. Yeah, I think it was really. I mean, there was um, one I remember is a I read quite a few books by Colin Forbes, a thriller writer, and he'd written war stories. He wrote a great um, novel called Tramping Armor, which is about a tank crew 
stuck behind the lines um, uh, at around the time of Dunkirk. And I wrote a total ripoff of this book and finished it, but never, I don't remember ever thinking I could get this published. I just enjoyed telling stories and just enjoyed putting words on paper. Um, yeah, so through my teens, I didn't, I never sent anything off for publication. It was a, it was a short story called Black Hearts when I was probably 21, 22, maybe 23, um, that I sent off to a competition. I can't remember the name of the competition and got a really good, you know, sorry you didn't win, but here's, but we enjoyed the story, you know. And, I, and from that story onwards, I thought to myself, I, I could try and get these published somewhere. And that's when I started looking into where you get stuff like that published. And at the time, it was small press magazines. Yeah. You know, printed at home on one of those hand, hand printed <laughs> things that, that the ink smells really nice. Hmm. Um, saddle stapled at home, folded over and sent out to, you know, 30 or 40 or 100 subscribers. And that's yeah. where I got my, my first stories published. First, first published story was actually in um, a magazine called Psychotrope. Nice. Amazing little magazine. And the second, second one was Peeping Tom, which was a really popular small press magazine back in the day. Hmm. I'm assuming they've stopped now. Yeah. Oh, years ago. Yeah. There's not, oh. there's not so many of these magazines around anymore. There was a thriving small press when I was, um, when I started out, there were hundreds of magazines because mm. you could just start one in your living room, basically. Yeah. Um, People and Tom, I got paid £2.50 for my story. So my second story acceptance, I got paid for. Um, I probably still got the check somewhere, actually, because I didn't cash it. I didn't want to cash it, <laughs> it on the wall and thought, there's my inspiration. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes yeah. you still don't get paid that much more, but sometimes you do. So how many books was it before you actually started thinking, you know, I could make a go of this? Because you said, uh, so 17 years since you've gone full time as an author, um, which yeah. is obviously like a decent stretch to be putting out stories and, and making money from, from doing what you're doing. What was the first yeah. moment in which you went, OK, I think I've got something here where I can really make a living from this? Um, oh, God, I'm trying to think now. So so my first few books were small press books, in, independent press, like people like... Um, I mean, my first publication in the States was Nightshade Books, and they did a few of my books. Um, and over here, I was I had a couple of stories, a couple of novellas with PS Publishing, Razorblade Press, uh, Tangent. But it was um, my first mass market book was The Nature of Balance with uh, Leisure Books in the States. And that was, I think that was about 2001 or 2002. Um, and they, they, I mean, they didn't pay an awful lot of money, but it was, you know, you were selling tens of thousands instead of, instead of hundreds of books at a time so the potential hit me there and I think it was probably just I got a deal with Bantam writing, writing fantasy books in the states and it was before the first one of those books was out that I decided to go decided to make a uh, make the leap mm. I was I was a surveyor in my previous life so I was good at uh, statistics and actually, <laughs> I, was, I was terrible at statistics but I, I managed <laughs> to bluff my way through the job so I created a sort of a, a spreadsheet for my wife saying, look, I've got these advances coming in. I've got these savings. I can, if I went, if I quit work here part-time. So, so first of all, I went two and a half days a week. Um, mm. So that was awful. I was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning. I was writing. Then Wednesday lunch, I would have to put a shirt and tie on and go to work. It was fucking terrible. <laughs> um, but then after two and a half years of that, I said to my wife, um, just really need to make a go of this now. And if it all goes wrong, I can go and get another job. Um, so, so I did, and she was very supportive and said, yeah, you got to go for it. Um, so, so I sort of started work with, with like six or eight months money in the bank, just in case nothing else came in, but then other stuff started coming in and it's all, like I say, it's mostly, there's a few, there's been a few difficult years, but mostly it's been okay. And, and I sort of judge, judge making a success of it as I, I earn more now than I did when I was working for the man. Yeah. <laughs> as a surveyor so most most years I earn more some I don't but then it balances out mm. and, and how I'm did you I oh, like yeah sorry yeah so I'm doing what I love as well which wasn't yeah. what I was doing when I was surveying oh, I was huge as well you can't really put a price on happiness I know that um I went full-time in 2019 and I'm yeah. yet to supersede what I was earning um mm. and I'm about to take another big pay cut because I've been ghostwriting as well for three years and I'm about to drop that to do some other things as well oh, okay. um but that you can't really put a price on 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 that happiness on that freedom to be able to no. you know, spend time doing the things that you want to do yeah, um, yeah and you so during that that time in which you did go to two and a half days was your creative 
production as you kind of expect it to be because sometimes when people kind of get that swell of time they have all the intentions of going I'm going to do more but then not quite feeling it did you find that a challenge or was that kind of perfect for you at that point so to start off with so when I so um I think the, the short answer is no I didn't do much more than I thought I was going to do mm -hmm. you know so uh, two and a half days a week I was writing quite a bit and then when I went full-time I thought I'm going to be able to write twice as much as I do now and obviously <laughs> didn't because it just doesn't work like that there's a mm. there's a limit to there's a creative limit I think not for everyone but but for me I if I'm in the saddle on a novel I can do 2,000 words a day and that's I'm really pleased with that some days I've done five or six thousand but I'm not sure they're all five or six thousand good words you know yeah um but when I actually went full-time my, my first day as a full-time writer was um writing the novelization of 30 days at night so I, it was a great plan. It was like, this is my first day working mm. for myself full time, oh, so I, which was brilliant. So I spent two days writing, you know, getting into the novel. And then my editor sent, said, oh, we've got the shooting script and the beginning's different. So I had to bin those first two days work. I basically lost them. There's 10,000 words, I think. I was just, you know, really enjoying it. Oh, that's got to hurt. It would hurt, but <laughs> just coming with, you know, with tying stuff, it's just something that happens sometimes. Um, it's not your baby really and, and you just need to you know follow the follow the cues um but yeah that was my that was my first two days but I, I still you know I, I guess I've probably averaged two novels a year since I've started writing some years I'll write three some one with other stuff um but I one thing I didn't do is slow down I, I did think there was a risk of having more time which meant you could you know spend more time writing novels but I, I don't think I could spend a year writing a novel now I've written novels so quickly all through my career mm. um partly through necessity you know working working at the time and partly through you know there's a fine balance between arts and commerce I talk about it with friends all the mm. time and it's you know writing is an art but I also do it for a living so I have to balance the commerce side of it um because I want to keep doing it for a living so I, I couldn't spend a year writing a novel because it probably it wouldn't be financially viable unless yeah. I had income from elsewhere. Most mm. of the time. That's really interesting because uh that's definitely something that's played on my mind for the last couple of years. Um, because I guess, you know, if you start looking at art versus commerce, a lot of people would kind of use the phrase selling out and, and bringing that into into the fold, which I don't I don't agree with on on any level at all. Yeah. Um how do you balance the need to obviously sell your books with the creative process are they sort of two separate things that you think about totally differently or are they kind of all one beast in your head um yeah I, I, so i've always been lucky enough to sell i sell every book i write and a lot of the time a lot of the time if you're in in a good relationship with the publisher you'll sell a novel on proposal so mm -hmm. i i always write what i want to write and i'm lucky enough to sell it but conversely i i sort of sometimes think if i wrote something a bit if I tried something a bit different, maybe I maybe it would sell better. And I've tried that. You know, I've written fantasy, um, thrillers, and they they've all reached certain levels of success. But um, but I'm not sure I've ever I've never had like a breakout novel that's exploded and gone viral and sells hundreds of thousands of copies. So me balancing art and commerce means I'm I'm I feel I'm in a fairly okay place really because I, I i write everything i write is something i want to write and it earns me enough money to move on to the next project but there's never there's never come an occasion where there's been a you know there's been a couple of reasonable paydays in my career with like movies and stuff like that but there's never been a novel that lands and really takes off and makes me think right now i can change the way i work and just write a novel every 18 months because i'm earning those sort of advances that doesn't happen to many people, I don't think. Mm. So um, you use the phrase selling out there. Some people say, oh, you like I've I've done a lot of tie-in fiction, and some people regard that as the the poor uh, relationship <laughs> to original fiction. But I've always loved the tie-in fiction I've done, and I've never done anything that I didn't want to do. I've mm. been offered stuff, and I thought, oh, I don't really don't fancy doing that. So I, I've turned it down. But stuff like Star Wars and Hellboy and yeah my god i've written four alien novels i fucking love alien <laughs> as you can see i got my plush plush face hugger on my yeah. chest back there i've got a little dude here <laughs> massive alien fan so yeah. um, 
So I've never done tie-in stuff that I've not really wanted to do. And tie-in stuff is is a payday, like novelizing uh, a movie script. You can do it in a month and the money's reasonable for what you do. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't regard that as selling out. I regard it as being a working writer, which is how I regard myself. I'm not a bestseller. I've, I've been in the bestseller charts, but strangely, both with books that are tie-ins. You know, my Star Wars novel was a bestseller. In, in the New York Times bestseller list, it wasn't number one. And I think, I think Cabin in the Woods also, or maybe it was 30 days. No, maybe it was 30 days. One of those got in the charts. But, mm -hmm. um, but you know, I'm a working writer and I do regard it as work. Mm -hmm. It's a job. You know, I say to my wife, right, I'm going to work now. I, yeah. don't say, I don't say I'm just popping in the office, put my feet up and stare out the window, you know, mm -hmm. although that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> it is hard though, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's really working a creative muscle for a substantial amount of time per week to make the words come out on page whether yeah. or not like you know you're doing it as a living or whether you're trying to do it as like a hobbyist it, it, i think a lot of people that i have in my life friends and family have no idea the energy expenditure that does come from right. writing yeah and they see it yeah. as you know you just, oh you just get to like tell stories for the day it's like well you try and tell a story and, and you know see how that yeah. goes for you <laughs> Yeah, I, I always find it hard work. I find writing hard work and it's a pleasure, but it's, you know, and I always, um, I'm always looking forward to getting to my desk in the morning and starting, but it's never, it's, I never find it really, really easy. Uh, I find it hard work. And I think that's, that's just me, but also I think most friends I speak to who write say it should be hard work, really. Mm -hmm. um, if it's easy, it's probably not very good. There are, there are some, I remember I saw Ian Banks into Ian Banks is one of my favorite writers. Um, he's one of the few few people who's died that I felt personal loss for, even though I'd only met him once, really, really pissed at a bar. Mm. Um, and and I saw him interviewed once, and uh, the inter I can't remember. I think it was Beryl Bainbridge interviewing him actually, and she said, "So you must spend you know nine or ten months a year writing your novels because they're all so intricate." And he said, "Oh no, I spend." Um, spring, summer, and autumn, I spend with my friends driving around Scotland, drinking whiskey and having a great time. And then winter comes, and I think, oh, I better write another novel. <laughs> I thought, you lucky bastard, you know, you can spend three months writing those amazing novels, three mm -hmm. or four months. I'm sure he was being a bit flippant. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. What does your um, typical weekly writing process look like? Um, it's, it's pretty much nine to five, to be honest. Um, writing wise, it's I write during the day. I, I'll try and get to get in my desk by nine. Um, uh, evenings, evenings often I'll do stuff like Zoom interviews or speak to my agent. And um, my agent's in New York. My film manager's in LA. So if I need to speak to them, that's always you know uh, out of work time most of the time. Um, but yeah, because I even even though seventeen years since I worked you know, in an office for a living. And that was nine, that was, that was flexi time, nine to five-ish. Um, I still keep those hours. I, I, I'd i love to be able to get up at six and start work. I know Ramsey Campbell is at his desk by six in the morning. Um, as well. <laughs> are you? Right. Yeah, yeah. I just wish, I just wish. I mean, I'm, um, I'd find it easier. My, my kids are both grown up now. My, my daughter's 24 and she's in uni. My boy's nearly 19 and he's just about to start uni. He's traveling at the moment. Mm. Um, so it's just me and my wife in the house at the moment. So I'm trying to get up earlier, but it's just so easy just to lie in. I like, I like, I like my sleep. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of pretty much normal work day. Um, but I'm always, I, but I always, I do say to my wife, I'm always working as well. If there's a, a phone call at 11, I'll come in and take it and do whatever needs doing, you know, yeah. because it's, I, I regard it as work. And the job is also, you know, a pleasure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also love what I do, so that helps. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And when it comes to your creating um, side of things, how you actually write the stories, does that change much over the years in terms of the actual process of getting the story started and going down? And presume here that we'll talk about kind of your own stories as opposed to the tie-ins. Yeah. Um, but how how does your writing process look in terms of, of getting that onto the page? Um hasn't changed massively it changes book by book but not to a huge amount so often if i sell a book on a proposal I'll, I'll write a few page proposal maybe a sample chapter or two um and if i sell a book like that i'll very often put the proposal to one side and then just go and write the book without looking at it again and that happens quite often um 
but I tend, I'm a, a pantser, not a planner. I, mm-hmm. I don't spend weeks and weeks and weeks planning a novel. I'll, I'll let it percolate in my head for months probably and then start taking notes and get to a stage where I think I'm ready to start writing. And then I sort of plan a couple of chapters ahead as I'm writing then. So I'll, I'll have a, a chapter on, on the screen and at the end of everything I've written, at the end of the day, I'll make a load of notes and those notes slowly expand into what the rest of the novel, the shape of the rest of the novel is going to be. Um, sometimes it works and sometimes it's caused me problems. And I, yeah. I, I have occasionally thought to myself, if I planned a novel scene by scene, chapter by chapter, it might be a more interesting and enlightening way to work. But also I think I'm, I'm afraid of telling the story before I've written it. So I yes. think if you plan too much, yeah. you get to the stage where you've told yourself the story and a lot of the pleasure of writing is telling yourself a story. That's why when I get to the end of writing a novel, I speed up because I want to know what happens. At the end. <laughs> <laughs> We're very, very similar in that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good, good. Yeah. I, mean, that's, I think that's just the natural way of doing it because we are, even though it takes us months to tell a story, we're still telling a story and finding our way through it. Um, I mean, some uh, Last Storm, for instance, was was a quite a different process because I wrote that longhand. We could talk about that later, maybe. Oh, okay. That's the first, first and last novel I've written longhand. <laughs> I won't say never again, but it, that was a really, really interesting experience. And I, I actually really honestly think it benefited the, the writing. Hmm. But mostly a um, few pages of notes, which expand as I'm, as I'm working. Well, I mean, since we're there, and since I didn't know this was a thing, let's let's dig into yeah. that. Okay. So I know only a couple of people who have written sort of big novels longhand, especially sort of um, recent years. I know one of them is Josh Malaman's done a few of his longhand and then converted yeah. over. I know Gaiman famously does a lot of longhand into um, mm. text. What was the impetus to, to go in longhand with this, this most recent book? Which, for people listening on the podcast, is officially out and it would have come out last Tuesday. Well, it's out tomorrow, actually, I think. Well, so this goes live on Monday. The oh, of course. Yeah. So, oh, great. No, Tuesday so, 5th, go get so your coffee. Actually, Tuesday the 12th, I was, I was informed today that it's actually out on the 5th. Boom. Yes. So there we go. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, a bit of confusion. So it, it's, it, it was put back in the States to the 19th because of uh, delivery problems. And I think the paper shortage has been causing people uh, hassle. Um, but the UK release date is the 5th of July. Um, mm-hmm. So the reason why I wrote it longhand is Rio Ewers, basically. Rio's a dear friend of mine and, and one of our best writers. He's a Canadian, British Canadian. Um, he's a really good mate and he writes all his novels longhand. So he'll take a notebook and, and anything, any bit of paper on, he'll go and sit in a cafe or pub or sit at home and write his day's words, get back, type them up. And then the next day he'll do the same. So he just talked me into doing it. And I thought it was really, I had a sort of romantic notion of having all these nice, I ordered some really nice notebooks from, from the States, you know, and I thought, oh, I, I want really a Quillen. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. Code and Quill notebook. Cost me a fortune to get it imported from the States. <laughs> so I had all this notion of, of going to sit, I live in a nice part of South Wales, going to sit on the mountaintops with mm. a flask of coffee and a, a um, you know, notebook and a fountain pen. And then, so I started and then fucking COVID hit. that was it so I wrote the entirety of the novel longhand sitting in the house Uh, oh no we we got a three uh, fairly sizable it's not sizable houses three bed semi you know I've got the office downstairs we got cabin in the garden but my wife was working from home my daughter was finishing a degree from home my son was doing his A-levels from home so I just had to find a quiet spot to sit and I wrote the whole thing longhand during COVID um yeah uh, so and, and then had to type it up and being a three or four finger typist it took me ages so that's it's the typing up more than anything that that I think mm-hmm. I, I waited till the end I should have I should have did done what Rio does which is write a couple of days and then transcribe mm-hmm. and edit but process wise I honestly think it benefited the novel because I didn't because I'm a bad typist when I'm writing a novel I'm always going back correcting stuff yeah and that not only does it I think disrupt the flow it also means you're editing as you go mm-hmm. whereas with the last storm i didn't i just splurged it out on the page on on the thousand pages whatever it was i've got a big pile of notebooks somewhere um my god yeah and i i think it i think it helped i think it gave the novel more impetus and more sort of uh, velocity i think mm. in some ways 
I like that. Be interesting um, when I get my copy through, reading that and seeing what that impact is. Yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't imagine doing it, <laughs> doing it myself. I'm, I'm one of those people that I have to type because my brain works very, very fast. And right. I have a fear that if I'm like writing with pen that I've had it before where I've tried to write a sentence and already like I'm three sentences ahead of where I'm writing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. much of that at all or was it kind of um, Yeah, a little, but then, um, so I'm also, as well as being not very, I've written all these novels, but mainly mainly with these three fingers. <laughs> um, but also my handwriting is terrible. So uh, a lot of the time I was I was handwriting you know, and, and jumping, you know, like you say, speeding up because I had ideas for the next couple of sentences. And then when it came to transcribe it, it was, I, I had, sometimes I had trouble. I was just got the gist. Oh, no. <laughs> I read, trying to read what I'd written and it was like, what, what did I mean here? What did I, um, it sort of worked out okay, though. I, I think I'm, I'm, and the transcribing was one edit editorial process. And then once I transcribed it all and then the proper work began, um, so I suppose it had one more round of edits in my yeah. books. Must yeah. be nice to uh, still experiment and still find new ways of, of bringing the story to life. Yeah, and that's something I, I still try and do now with whatever I'm working on is um, I always or, always take a step back and think, how am I going to approach this one? It's usually the same way because it's the way I've, I'm used to doing it and the way this worked in the past. Mm -hmm. But that was a interesting experiment. I'm working on a new novel now, which is... Um, well, in between other stuff, which is uh, I'm just doing traditionally. I'm just typing in. Um, I'm not quite sure how it's working yet. Uh, um, but also I'm working on different stuff at the moment, which means usually when I'm working on a novel, I'm just working on the novel and maybe a couple of side projects like um, occasional screenplay or something. But at the moment I'm working, I'm actually working on a computer game at the moment, which is great fun. Nice. Really enjoying that. And I'm doing some audio dramas um, for Audible, which um, can't announce yet but they're going to be quite exciting <laughs> well looking forward to seeing those yeah i am um, i kind of want to dig into a little bit about your publishing journey and, and specifically how you're getting the books published because um i know you've got dreaming and fire press which you know you've done some stuff where from what it seems you've independently published your things through but at the same yeah. time you obviously still do a lot of work with major publishers um how do you approach where a book should live and how has that process changed over the last sort of 10, 20 years, because I know that obviously the whole landscape of publishing has kind of rocked. Yeah, it's changed a lot since I feel really old now, but it's changed a lot since <laughs> I've been in it because, you know, the whole ebook thing exploded. And then um, at, the, at the time, then it was, oh my God, books are dead, or everything's going to be ebooks from now on. And that's leveled out. Mm -hmm. and books, physical books are more popular than they've been for a long time, I think, at the moment. Um, Dreaming in Fire is just a little side projects that I put some I put some old books out under really as ebooks I just thought it'd be best to try and you know this books I'd had the rights back for mm -hmm. that nobody really wanted to publish again um novellas that I had the, owned the rights to so I just thought I'd do it as a bit of a little project um and then the only original book I've done through there is the the, the fitness book um yes. you know, run, run walk crawl getting fit in my 40s and that was something else I finished during lockdown I'd, I'd started um so I started sort of getting fitter about 10 or 12 years ago and doing runs and then got into biking and then progressed from 5Ks to Ironman and just went a bit silly. Um, <laughs> but, but I still love doing shit like that. You know, it just keeps me sane. And mm -hmm. uh, I spend the bulk of my day at my desk, which is now a standing desk. I'm actually sitting at it, but I bought myself a standing desk. That's why hey. the old background is great. I love it. Yeah. Um, but run wall crawl i just thought i you know need to write about what i'm doing and and um uh and it just turned into a real fun project uh that didn't hurt at all when i was writing it whereas what i was writing about all hurt you know all these yeah. marathons and stuff and that's the only thing i've self-published uh the only original thing i've self-published all, all the other stuff i publish has all been traditional through mainstream publishers and that like i said before i started with indie press when i when i was starting out I still work with the indie press now. I've had a couple of books out through PS Publishing recently. Mm -hmm. um, so I love working with them. And certain books, like a novella, I did a novella called Without Walls um, in collaboration with Danielle Serra, the Sardinian artist, brilliant artist. And there was, it's a sort of project that mainstream publishers just don't really know what to do with. <laughs> oh, we like this, but it's, 
It's only 12,000 words long and heavily illustrated. So it ended up with a small press, with an indie press PS, which is, mm. you know, uh, and the book look, just looks beautiful. Um, but novel-wise, I've always been lucky enough to publish anything I've written, pretty much. And a lot of the time, that's because you're, you're already in a relationship with a publisher. Mm-hmm. Like Titan and I have done, I think, the, must have done 15 books together now, including all the tie-in stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's always been traditional. That's not to say I've not thought about doing um, self-publishing. Uh, the person who's made a massive success of that in, is Adam Neville in our mm-hmm. genre. Adam exclusively self-publishes now, and he's done a brilliant, brilliant job at it. But I'm not sure I've got the focus or the knowledge to be able to do that successfully um, and take the time it would take to do it. Yeah, it's a lot of different plates to spin and mechanisms yeah. to to get working and yeah yeah but so curiosity partly for myself but also for a lot of people i know who are listening who um because what i find a lot in the circles that i run in is very very self-published heavy um and there's a yeah. lot of emphasis on you know make the most of, of selling your own books build your own audience all that kind of thing what would you say to someone um in 2022 who would like to go traditionally published what would be the sort of best method of approaching that because obviously we know it's not a guaranteed thing to to get but to actually try and get into the the traditionally published arena um get an agent is definitely the first thing i'd say some some publishers do um do still entertain uh non-agented manuscripts Mm -hmm. and some of them do still publish them and pull them off the slush pile but i think it's a very small percentage so um agent is is like a first uh quality control um mechanism as far as the publishers are concerned you know and a, a good agent is worth their weight in gold i've got an amazing agent who's who's a good friend and i couldn't couldn't do what i'm doing without him absolutely without a doubt howard moorheim in new york amazing guy um and that that's the big that's also a big step because sometimes it takes a long time to get an agent you know agents work for you but also they pick and choose who they work for yeah. <laughs> If you see what I mean, they don't just take on anyone. They take on they take on people who they think they can sell, and people whose work they think they can sell. So it's got to be a certain standard before uh, an, an agent will take you on. And then once you get a good agent, um, once you get an agent who hopefully is good, then they'll have relationships with with all the mainstream publishers and editors, and they know people. Mm-hmm. So they'll read your stuff and, and think, right, this is this one might be suitable for Galance, for instance, and uh, you know. Um, work on their relationships but an, a, an agent is is definitely worth their weight in gold mm. I've, I've tended to jump from publisher to publisher and that's that's a commercial thing <laughs> you know, like um like when i wrote my thrillers the hunt and the family man for avon they uh didn't sell brilliantly so i didn't have another deal with them and that's just part of being a working writer you know i don't know many writers i know a few but not many who stick with the same publisher all the time it, a lot of the time it's sign up with a new publisher exciting deal yay this is going to sell million oh it doesn't uh move on to other publishers so i in that in that way i've, I've worked with a lot of the lot of the big publishers and mm. um have enjoyed good relationships with virtually all of them to be honest um mm. it's just the nature of the the beast really sometimes yeah and so one of the questions that i know that people will be waiting for me to ask um and i'd be remiss if i didn't ask the tie-ins yeah so how did all of that come about? How did you get involved in, in working with these massive, massive properties? Um, so the first, uh, I'm trying to think, I think the first one I did was, I think it was a Hellboy novel for Chris Golden. Now, I, I've got a hazy memory at best, but that was <laughs> either, that one was the first one, or the Cabin in the Woods. If it was Cabin in the Woods, it was because I, I'd signed up with Titan um, for The Silence, my, my novel, um, and Colebrook. Who they published which they published in america but not here um so so basically the tie-in stuff once i think once you sort of show a, that you've got a bit of a um that you can deliver on time and deliver you know books that people think are okay generally editors are more likely to offer you tie-in work because it's it's almost always real tight deadlines it's like can you novelize this movie for us in six weeks yeah okay and then as long as you got the time, the, the pay is usually, it's not, it, it's not, um, you know, 
order kidney shaped swimming pool subterranean <laughs> James Bond, but it, it's it's but it's usually okay. You know, it, it's a it's a um, bread and butter work sometimes, and great fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you've done a couple of tie-ins, even if it's for different publishers, and you become um, known as a tie-in person, people tend to come back to you sometimes. It's not something that I want to do loads and loads, and I have I have done quite a bit of it. I haven't done much lately. Um, I'm enjoying working on my own stuff, and and uh, you, you know, I think it's it's good to do a few and be known as as um, uh, reliable. But I I wouldn't just want to just write tie-ins all the time. Mm. I've I've had fun doing them, and I've had amazing fun doing them. Like Star Wars, I mean that was that was amazing. My agent phoned me about something else. He said, "Oh, by the way, um, do you want to do Star Wars? I've just had a call." I said, "Yes." <laughs> Yeah, bloody right. <laughs> uh, and Alien as well. The Alien projects were just amazing with Titan. They were, they were a labour of love, absolutely, without a doubt. Like I said earlier, I've not done stuff that I, I didn't... I've not done stuff that I thought, oh, I don't really want to do this. I've enjoyed everything I've done. Yeah. Um, so it's it's sort of getting a bit of a... Rep, not a reputation, but getting... Um, once editors know you're fairly reliable at delivering stuff on time and, and that isn't crap, then they're more likely to come come to you. And with Titan, certainly, you know, they've done, I've done as many, probably done more of my own novels with Titan as I have tie-ins. So, uh, and once you get working with an editor, Mm. um, you know, they they know that you're okay to work with most of the time. (laughs) And how much flexibility do you have in the sense of, obviously it's it's other people's intellectual property. So I'm assuming obviously there are boundaries, there are, are things, and I also, assume that doing something like a star wars story is going to be a bit different to a, a film novelization like cabin in the woods how do the different yeah. kind of stories work in terms of actually getting the story down and, and how much creativity you have in that process well so um novelizations to start with the the creativity is getting inside the characters heads which mm. you can't do in the movie you know the movies you can see it and hear it but you can't you can't internalize anything yeah so novelizations for me are really expanding on the character characterization stuff. Um, but I think I've done three novelizations now, and it's always pretty much you can't cut anything out, but you can add stuff. So um, when I did Thirty Days of Night, I finished it and delivered it to my editor, and he, oh, I love it, I love it, I love it, and he came back two days later, and said, "Oh, you changed some of the dialogue," and I said, "Yeah, I, I thought it wasn't very good, so I changed some of it. So it's got to go back in." So you could add stuff. Yeah. Like three days a night, I, I added a scene where a polar bear walked into Barrow and the, the vampires toyed with it like a cat with a mouse and then they killed nice. it, which would have been great in the movie. But yeah. Um, uh, so original tie-in stuff, like Star Wars, for instance. Uh, Star Wars is a good example because it's such an entrenched universe. It's, it's, it's a beloved universe, you know, got dedicated fans. When I was um, when it was announced I was doing a Star Wars novel, I had an email from somebody. Oh my God, are you gonna do? Are you gonna use the EZ one four one droid? I, said, I don't know what the fuck you're on about. And I, I sort of replied, said, Yeah, I might do. I'm not sure yet. Uh-huh. See where the story takes me. Um, Star Wars. My novel was the earliest in the timeline, so I was quite relieved I didn't have to read 150 Star Wars novels to get up to where mine was placed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also I had great freedom um, coming up with the story. It, it, it took a while to pin down the sort, of, um, the sort of location and theme of the story, because anything I mentioned, it was all within a Dawn of the Jedi uni- um, universe, which was basically one big star system, Titan star system. Um, anything I pointed out in the comics, I said, oh, I'd love to write a story about that. If no, you can't do that. We're going to use that in the future. <laughs> so in the, in the end, I just made up my own, um, I think I made up a couple of my own planets, my own characters, my own story set in the sort of same time zone so they they were forced swords instead of lightsabers for instance yeah um and then i had great freedom and the, uh, the editing process was really painless to be honest there was hardly there were very few notes came back saying you can't do this the, one of the interesting was, ones was um oh you've you've used cuss words uh, <laughs> uh and, and they weren't they were like uh, i think you used the word bastard in there a couple of times and shit mm. And they were like, hmm. and my editor was, oh, it's in context, so I'll leave it in. And some, a few fans, few reviews mentioned that I used cuss words in a Star Wars novel, and they didn't. 
but then I was asked to write it because I because of the fantasy I'd done the sword and sorcery stuff mm. um dusk and dawn and fallen in the island which isn't really sword and sorcery but that's how some people saw it and um they, they wanted this novel to feel more like a sword and sorcery story set in space than than a sort of action sci-fi story set in space yeah so um, that that also shows how you know you, you write a certain type of book that can lead you right into a lead you to write another stuff like mm -hmm. i wrote i never for a minute thought if i write some dark fantasy novels i might work on star wars one day and that's just how it worked out it was a nice you know nice surprise yeah it's interesting as well that you brought up about um you know, almost being typecast or like the danger of being typecast as that mm. kind of writer i'd never really kind of imagined that in in the writing world you obviously like imagine it's like an actor or you know in, in the film world but i never saw that crossing over into writers with novels and things um it does for some i i i don't people do talk about all the time stuff i've done but then i've also done a lot of my own stuff yeah um and I think the facts I've done different stuff, like I've, I've, you know, I've written a lot of horror novels that are, all, that are fairly different. I've written a zombie apocalypse novel and then compare that to something like Silence or Relics. Relics mm -hmm. was almost a mythological novel. Um, but then I've also done dark fantasy and crime and thrillers. Um, so I think that there is a risk of getting typecast. That, that's why, you know, I wouldn't want to do two tie novels a year mm -hmm. because then you you are known more for your tie-in stuff. But the upside of that is that, you know, I think my Star Wars novel, it's biggest selling novel I've ever done, is 70 or 80,000 copies or 100,000. And that's all to people who've never heard of me. <laughs> and if even, you know, two or 3% of those people like the book enough to go looking for Tim Levin novels, then it's beneficial. Mm. And the same with the Star uh, Alien stuff and any tie-in, I think any tie-in project you do, you, you're hopefully opening yourself up to new readers. Um, mm. I'm not sure what the crossover is. I don't think I don't think it's massive because if all those Star Wars readers started buying my own novels, then I would be a bestseller. But yeah, <laughs> um, but there must be a small amount who enjoy the novel, enjoy the story enough to to buy your original stuff. That's yeah. that's sometimes the hope as well. And how would you describe your latest project, The Last Storm, in terms of the story and you know what you're hoping to achieve with that book? Um, well, it's a climate, I think my publisher calls it a climate change horror thriller, which is mm. a bit of a mouthful, but it, I, I suppose it is. Um, Find that in the uh, metadata. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm sure that's all over Amazon. Uh, <laughs> sort of a natural follow-on to Eden, really, um, mm. which was a climate thriller, climate change thriller as well. It's, it's very different to Eden because, I mean, I've had a couple of people ask me, is it set in the same world? And I, my answer is, oh, it could be, because I hadn't really thought <laughs> what I was writing, but it could very easily be set in the same universe. There's no real story crossover. Um, whereas Eden was started with a group of people who uh, were very close and they were a good team and they had to confront trouble from the outside. Uh, the Last Storm is more, there's a real sort of family drama in there. So it starts with a, a, a estranged family and stories about them having to come back together to stop something terrible happening um and set it's set against a sort of a the sort of mythic epic north american landscape uh in the near future which is being um devastated by famine and drought so the whole swathe of mid-america is called the desert now because there's nothing very little grows there but it's also it also feels sort of contemporary in some ways in that even though there's been this climate disaster people are still watching movies and reading books and scrolling their social media and people are yeah. getting on with it. So um, it's a it's a terrible place to live, but they're also getting on with it. But there's also a cosmic horror element to it because um, my, my main characters are rainmakers. They're people who, who can bring rain through arcane means, which is described in the book. And they're tapping into some other sort of reality to bring this rain. And that starts bringing stuff other than rain down, like deadly creatures. So. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a it's a chase novel. Lots of my my friend Sarah Pinber said, "Oh, everything you write is a chase novel," and it's sort of. <laughs> it. I just love chase novels, so it's um, it's a race against time, across the sort of dust bowl type uh, landscape of, you know, epic landscape of North America, hmm. with, with the sort of cosmic horror tinges, especially towards the end. I'm and excited to read it. It's great. Yeah, I'm really yeah. really pleased with it. Really really pleased with it. And Titan have done, you know, they're 
they always do great covers. There's a beautiful cover. So and my good. son is particularly into scorpions at the minute. So when my copy oh, cool. comes through, I'm sure yeah. he'll love that. <laughs> there are some nasty scorpions in there. Yeah. Yeah. And might I also add, so I finished reading Eden last week. Absolutely fantastic. Loved it from start oh, cool. to finish. Thank you. Um, yeah. It also has one of the most entertaining deaths. And I won't say what it is, obviously, for people in case they right. want to read it. But yeah. The moment towards the end involving kind of like a descent from a crane. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. I read that and had one of those moments. Where I was like, I've never seen this in a book before. And that was fantastic. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah, um, uh, absolute pleasure. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a fantastic book. Is climate change a thing that's on your mind? Is that something you're trying to express through your books? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I've, I've always loved nature. I'm a, I'm a real, I'm a country boy, you know. Mm lived in the city for a while but we moved my wife and I moved to our village 25 years ago and we, we you know we both say we'd never live in a city again we just love where we live um so I, I'm a nature lover and then you can't be a nature lover and not be worried about what's happening to the mm. world you know? um so it, it it's always been it's always been present in my writing I think um even if it's just location wise a lot of my writings are rural rather than urban uh but lately it's become more of a, a very obvious facet to what I'm writing about. Even the silence was a sort of a, could have been, um, you know, a, a climate change, not climate change, but it was about us probing where we shouldn't in the world, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, yeah. Also, my daughter's doing a master's degree in, in climate change and environmental policy. So I get to read a lot of her essays and I'm, um, some of them go way above me, but yeah. Imagine that's pretty terrifying. It can be. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. But I also I also really try and keep an element of optimism. I'm not known for my humor in my books, but I try and keep and the optimism in the last storm is as I said just now, people are getting on with it. It's mm. it's a world that that's a that where the tipping point has come and come and gone, you know, and it's a world in decline. But people are still trying to farm and scrape a living and look after each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that's how we got to face it. We, we've got to adapt and survive uh, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, just let ourselves be overwhelmed by everything. Mm -hmm. On that cheery note, <laughs> so we are coming up to the end of the uh, podcast. But I do have uh, two more questions for you. One of them, okay. which I ask uh, every guest every week, and one of them, which is a surprise question from last week's guest. So okay. the first question is, uh, why do you, Tim Levin, write? Why do I write? Mm -hmm. Um my usual answer is it's the way my mum put my hat on and that that's the saying my nan had uh i i don't think i could not write but i also don't analyze the reason why i do it i just love it so much i love telling stories and it's just become the thing that i do you know i i do it for a living but uh, i'd write if i wasn't making money at it as well i love it uh, and a question from last week's guest uh, if you could write for any existing ip that you haven't yet what would it be and why Oh, that's an interesting one. Because mm. I've thought about this sometimes and and uh, it's, it's a difficult one. Not really sure. So I've always liked, I love Vikings. It's one of my favourite TV series. And I've never written a historical novel. So I think I'd probably like to write a Vikings novel. Nice. The amount of research involved in that would be staggering, I'm sure. Off-putting for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's why I write like far off concepts so I don't have to research. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't do an awful lot of research. Uh -huh. but, um, uh, my friend Mark Morris, for instance, wrote a Spartacus novel and he, mm -hmm. you know, he found the, the language and the research pretty heavy going on that. Um, yeah, I'm a big Vikings fan. I also love like The Shield, the TV series The Shield from, mm -hmm. from 10, 12 years ago, one of my favourite TV series. I'd quite like to write a S.H.I.E.L.D. novel, but that's L.A. crime. And again, you know, I don't know anything about cops and, and procedure. <laughs> so um, I think I've been lucky enough to, you know, I've written Alien and Star Wars and Firefly. I've been lucky enough to write a lot of the stuff I love, which is yeah. uh, which is great. Vikings. That's, the, that's the roundabout way of saying Vikings. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Awesome. So final question. Where can my listeners find out all about yourself and all that you're working on? Um, so I'm, my website's timlevin.net uh, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter and I'm just trying to learn how to use Instagram. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a, I'm not a Luddite, but I, I, it takes me a while to get into working out how these things work. So I am on Instagram as well. Um, so come and friend me and be gentle if I... <laughs> 
<laughs> perfect awesome well thank you so much for your time tim really really appreciate it cheers dan I had a really good fun thank you so there it is that was the interview with tim levin sam what did you make of that that guy has had like an insane career mm -hmm. like insane yes it i just think to be trusted with like such huge franchises star wars I mean, Firefly. <laughs> oh. in, in, in my mind, Firefly like Trump Star Wars, but I know that, that I could cause like a third world war by stating that. So, um, and you know, obviously, Alien and and the other uh, Hellboy and stuff that he was talking about, like that's insane. The fact that he's um, traditionally published was it was nice to get kind of the other side of the coin because, yes. like you said, in interview, obviously. A lot of the circles that you run in, that we run in, um, it's it's kind of huge indie, mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that people aren't interested in trad publishing. I know, for example, you know, I would never be like against being traditionally published, um, but the way if I did it, I'd want to like have a name for myself first and then kind of go in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so it was just really interesting to kind of hear him talk about that world. So, you know, like getting an agent and then almost kind of like cycling through the different publishing houses. Yes. Um, but that being kind of de rigueur, de rigueur, is that how you say it? Like, you know, just that's kind of how it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he just seemed like a really like chill, down to earth dude. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, was, a, it, was, it, it was good listening. Yeah, he is, a, he is a lovely guy. I don't know if he mentioned it in um, that interview directly, but I think it might have been when we were talking beforehand, but he had just come off of a weekend of doing a, a, an Ironman, so he was also quite oh, tired. God! <laughs> I know. It, it, ridiculously impressive, and definitely like yeah. now at the point where I'm like, okay, how do I train for an Ironman? Because I'm not in any way competitive. Um, but, <laughs> but, just but, Eddie is like, it. Yeah. Oh, no training. God. Just I do don't it. understand that. Do not get it. Do not That's get it. That's called knowing what your why is, Dan. Like even during the pandemic, you would understand that. I I know, but during the pandemic, like I was listening to him, and forgive me, I don't know it, uh, his pronouns. Him, Eddie Izzard. I believe so. If I if I get it wrong, I I apologize a thousand times. I um, believe it's he him. I believe um, so. I haven't seen for a while, so yes. Yeah. So yeah, he, he was doing a string of interviews during the pandemic because he was doing his marathons because he's the 43 marathons and 44 days guy or whatever yeah. it was, ridiculous. And yeah. he was just on interviews just while on the treadmill. Uh -huh. And he was basically doing the marathons and he was bored. So he got his agent to go like book me on interviews and they were like talking to him and he's like, yeah, I'm just, uh, yeah, and then I've been doing this with my career and, and it's all this, and it's like, it's not even that breathless, but it's it was incredible. Um, yeah. So yeah, like, how did we get into that running Ironman, all that kind of thing but yeah, yeah. so tim um he's someone who i've kind of chatted a couple of times to oddly over the last however many years i've been in the publishing um lovely guy always around on like the different groups and things it's really interactive and things and uh when i did meet him at chillicon it was literally because he was wearing a frank turner t-shirt and i'm as i say a big frank turner oh. fan and i didn't even realize it was him because i'd not like met him in person and i forgot what he looked like and just that surprise of we just we stood for about 20 minutes, had a drink, and just you know, chatted about Frank Turner and the fact that he's written a book with Frank Turner, which hurts my heart, but also I'm so like excited for him. Um <laughs> and you're right, like to see to see the other side of the coin is like see writers that are, you know, still making it traditionally published. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because I mean there's no lack of them, but it, there is a very skewed slant on I think a lot of the argument sometimes comes down to either or, like self-publishing or traditional. Yeah. And I think the argument needs to be what how what, how does it work for you like what is the direction for this particular book that you're working on because yeah. you know we've we've spoke well i've spoken on previous podcasts um about the fact that you so self-publish is a choice mm -hmm. you don't choose to be traditionally published you can choose to pursue it yes yeah, which yeah. i think is just like i think it was rachel heron i heard that from and that just blew my mind but it oh. makes total sense um yeah, it's not in your control is it yeah. like it's completely out of your control yeah, and like speaking to Tim and then like being at Chillicon and seeing other traditionally published authors, there is a part of me at the minute I'm, I'm working some stuff that I'm like, I think I'm going to ship that out to see if it gets anything first. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, I'll self-publish it. Like it, it's exploring your options and being deliberate about what you choose to do with your books. Yes. That's the key. Like yeah. 
don't feel like you're trapped into one way or another because of X reasons. Like um, there's, there's still a place. There's still a place yeah. to, you know, traditional, you can obviously reach markets that you've unable to reach by yourself. You have the power of like a big house behind yourself. Mm-hmm. There is an area of um, an aura of gravitas in that, you know, you've been accepted by a traditionally published house. So there's that yeah. like validation that comes with it. Um, and then conversely, self-publishing, like build an audience yourself, own what it is that you do. Um, you know, there's no limit to what you can do, what you can put out. It's all your own you can kind of control. Mm-hmm. But like some people liked him don't necessarily want to understand or like and i'm not I'm yeah. trying i'm not like um putting words in his mouth but like there are authors that don't want to do everything or yeah, for business they want, they want to write and yeah. you know that, that can happen um it's just wherever it, it sits best for you yeah there's and i think there's such like there's such pros and cons on both sides really and like you say i think it is just about knowing who you are like right now, because, you know, obviously we change and, and, and evolve and adapt. And it's about knowing what your project is and, you know, would it best suit indie or traditional? Because there is, you know, obviously both you can publish anything. I mean, if you get accepted, obviously with traditional, you can, you can relatively publish anything, but I think there are, reader wise there are definitely places that people go for certain types and genres of books so yeah I think it is just about knowing yourself knowing what you're working on and and kind of making that decision project by project mm-hmm. um but yeah like like we we're saying it's just it's really interesting to just hear the perspective of someone that I, that is so the word that's coming to my brain is entrenched but that's mm-hmm. that has negative connotations and I don't mean it that way um in the traditional space because you know we very rarely hear from that side of things um and yeah I think it was very valuable and also just like enjoyable to listen to he seems like just a really nice dude yeah I want to go for a beer with him (laughs) Tim if you're listening I know where you live Fantastic. So that brings us around to the end. Next week we have on the show oh our very own is it? <laughs> I need to double check this. There we go. Uh, so who do we have on the show next week, Dan? All <laughs> <laughs> my notes are skewed because it's been a hell of a week. Next week, we have the incredible, one of our own, Meg Jolly, on the podcast. Speaking oh. of Meg at the beginning of this episode. So Sceptiles. that's Meg. We're going to talk about septiles. Um, we're going to talk about walking two different genres. We're going to talk about all the Watch things that goblins. Probably not crotch goblins. Maybe oh. we'll see where it goes. Um, but yeah, Meg, uh, Meg is a best-selling author of fantasy. She's a best-selling author of British crime, and she's just an incredible, very, very uh, informed, intelligent person. And I'm very much looking forward to having the chance yeah. to sit down with her. Yeah, she's a best-selling woman of my heart. Mm. As well. How sweet, <laughs> beautiful. Well, we'll wrap up by saying a massive thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in. We appreciate you, appreciate, appreciate you and the time you choose to spend with us each week. And as always, if you're looking to level up your writing and activate your author career, head on over to activatedauthors.com to find out all about our community, our resources and everything else that we've got going on. One more time from myself and from Sam. Goodbye. And we will see you next week. Goodbye. We appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> Activate your energy.